Hi, everybody. This is Hans Hansen, Dr. Hansen. I have here three really good podcasts that uh, went on over to the ASIPP uh, website. Let me tell you a little bit about that website. Um, I podcast over there, too, and um, as you know, I work uh, as hard as I can to, you know, make access to care a reality for everybody. ASIPP is a champion of that, so I believe in them. I work with them. And I work for them. I work with them. And um, I don't take any compensation from them. So, like, whenever I uh, go somewhere or uh, teach, um, I don't expect or want compensation. The point being is uh, let's get the world educated, um, both on the receiving end and the delivery end and the providers, um, as as good as they can get. And I hope I can continue to be a value there. Uh, speaking of value, you'll hear Andy Trescott, you'll hear uh, Dr. Weiner and Jasper, and uh, the incomparable uh, Dr. Rax in uh, uh, this three-part series. And I, I put it over here because it's it's worth listening to because this is what the docs are listening to and the providers are listening to. So I urge you to go to ASIPP.org and uh, just kind of like navigate around there. I, I will tell you this. You can go to Pain Physician. That's a journal. And I'm, I'm one of the editors there. I, um, I am so proud of where that journal is. It's a high-impact journal, meaning it's a very valuable, valuable journal. Um, Dr. K, K-A-Y-E, um, a true scholar. Uh, MD, PhD. He was a pharmacist, went on to medical school, and now he's a director of uh, pain and anesthesia programs. He's our editor. Uh, it's an honor to have him as an editor. Well, guess what? All those articles in there, uh, as you search them, uh, they're free. They're yours. You can copy them. Uh, you can take them around and uh, show your friends that, uh, look, <laughs> this is another way to think about things. And this is an evidence-based, peer-reviewed journal. It's worth checking it out. So if you have questions about something, go over to Pain Physician. And there's a couple other sister journals, too. And uh, unlike so many other journals where you get on uh, National Institute of Health, um, and the Library of Medicine, um, these are free. Uh, that's um, that's our mantra, you know, get, get the information out there. So uh, enjoy the podcast. Uh, it's three parts, and I will talk to you soon. Pain Medicine. Fascinating story about this uh, great doctor, and it's... Uh, it's just one of those podcasts that I just want to listen to over and over. I published this before some time ago, but this was from the annual meeting at American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians in 2016. Uh, yeah, this sounds not so good, but you know, you take your opportunities where you get them and you go with them as you have them. I had the opportunity to sit down with an unbelievably um, kind man and a great physician, truly one of the greatest uh, physicians of our era. This is Dr. Gabor Rax, a fascinating story. He has, uh, he has a broad brushstroke in the world of pain medicine. He teaches all over the world. He's one of the founders of the World Institute of Pain. He's a terrific friend of the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians. And, uh, you know, this is a, a family. He has a terrific family that I've watched uh, grow and emerge into um, and it, 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 a technical force in themselves. It's called Epimed. It's a company that makes a lot of the equipment we use and some very unique items that have led to um, greater access to care for really important interventional procedures. Many tentacles, uh, a great contributor to the health and well-being of those that suffer with pain. And uh, in general, uh, medicine is a a stronger place in this new decade because of folks like him. Uh, they're timeless. They uh, are one in a million. And I want to say thank you again, Dr. Rax, for uh, choosing medicine, having the perseverance to sit through 
uh, a couple of different medical schools, emigrate to two different company countries, and then uh, end up uh, as a leader uh, in the field of pain medicine and a director of a fantastic program. So thanks again, and let's get to it. I have with me today Dr. Gabor Rax. I can't say enough about Dr. Rax. He's a true pioneer in our field and one of the greatest of, of the best of the best. Uh, Dr. Rax, I'd really like a comment or two about the passing of another true giant. And I, I, I'm going to ask you to make, make those comments, but first tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, the giant that passed was a friend. And it's easy to claim a friend, which is not so unless the other party also acknowledges you as a friend. And he wrote the nicest letter to a handful of people a week before he, he knew he was going to go to heaven. And... I directly quote from memory, he said, Gabor, what can I say? You were my friend, or are your friend, or some, are my friend. Anyway, I met Prithviraj Raj as a new chairman. Prior to being a chairman in Texas Tech, I was in Syracuse, then trained in anesthesiology, uh, intensivist, neuroanesthesia, dabbled in pain with my mentor, Willie Evers. And it, it became very obvious to me that you, you need friends, you need mentors. Not only that, but you need to become friend of others and be mentors to others and help them grow, be positively, constructively rude if necessary, but... <laughs> but appropriately rude. Anyway, I've been blessed, um, have had people help me for no good reason, which is the best kind of help. I it mean, is. There is nothing better. Uh, I arrived in England in 56, December, and a young family took me in their home, sight unseen, just hearing that I was a second-year medical student. And I, my, only, my only goal was to be a doctor. But how do you do that when you cannot speak a word of English? Oh, wow. So I had literally three months, 50, 60 words a day, uh, prior to the young family, uh, the man of the house, um, Dr. Ian McQuinney, his cousin was the dean of the medical school, and he attached to my letter of application uh, a brief note that he knows me because I live in their family, and, and lo and behold, I got an interview. Wow. And when I left, somebody came out from the interviewing process and said, you are in. Oh, wow. Now, and September, I restarted second year, had to test out from some simple subjects like physics and biochemistry and things, but somehow it never scared me, even though all the exams were essay exams. And by luck, I never ever had to take an English test. Oh, and wow. some say that it shows, but yeah, what the hell, you know. Yeah. Now you have spell checks on computers, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, you know, just overcoming the language barrier, that's tough enough. But this complicated scientific language, that must have just been a bear. I had friends, and they made it easy, and, and I, had, I had an incredible incentive. The incentive was, they said, you get a grant, and you get the grant so long as you pass your tests. And I had zero backing. It is amazing what you can do when you have no way out. Because I wanted to be a doctor, and I didn't want to be anything else. And uh, somehow I made it. And uh, I made it my... You know, I realized that 
I had to, with a funny name like Gabor Ratz, I had to work twice as hard as anybody else, you know. I didn't take it as an insult. I took it as an opportunity. And so when you feel like dropping, I mean, put it aside and step forward and say, what else may I do, please, sir? And then you do it, you know. Yeah. So that, that's been the principle along the way, and I've been just very lucky. Well, that's yeah. more than just luck. It's accomplishment. You took uh, a very challenging environment. You rose, and you had great resilience. But tell tell us what happened after med school. Well, I had to. I, I thought I would become a reconstructive pediatric head and neck surgeon, and I everything I wanted, I could do it. It just happened, you know. And, But I screwed up because I got the choice plum job for internship in Liverpool, England. And I, I just looked at the various jobs and I applied just to one job. I was so stupid, I didn't realize there were 50 applicants for that one job. But what was worse, I got it. <laughs> because, you know, when you get it, you think you get everything. and. Life isn't like that. You have to think ahead. And it was a hell of a lesson because I'm having fun being an intern. And um, it, was, it really was fun. It was fate. Uh, it was fate is what it was. Uh, so it took, you, it took you places. Where did it take you? Well, it, I remained in Liverpool for the year. But then when my buddies, they didn't get the plump jobs... Uh, they were coming in and scurrying around looking for anatomy demonstrator jobs. And suddenly I realized they were all coming, oh, I got this job, I got that job. I, that, gosh, I should have done it myself, but I never even thought about it. So I, um, I thought, well, I better think about it. Do I really want to be a surgeon? And let's say I ended up a surgeon and with a name like the Boar Rats, I end up in some a uh, small Yorkshire town somewhere. Now, do I want to end up in a small Yorkshire town? And the answer to every one of them was no, no, no. So then I thought, well, what is it else that I like? I didn't want to miss a subject, went through the curriculum. And, and do I want to be a pediatrician? Hell no. Ophthalmologist, uh, you know, and the only difference I could see that one had a patch on the left eye on the other one, the right eye, and <laughs> and it was always dark. And I, I no, I thought no, psychiatry, hell no, internal medicine. I was just some cardiology, and uh, it was it, it, hardly anybody ever takes the pill the doctor gives. You know, it was like right. voodoo medicine, and so I, I I now appreciate a good doctor, but uh, as a as a young guy. Uh, It was not, and then suddenly, I, to my utter surprise, there were three subjects that emerged. One was uh, orthopedic surgery, the other one was neurosurgery, and the third one was anesthesia, to my surprise. And my best man at the wedding uh, in fifth year uh, was the son of the professor, Cecil Gray's son, Dave Gray, and... I asked him, uh, what will you do? And he says, anesthesia, of course. And that sort of made me stop and pay attention. And because I already thought there was a potential. Because, and then the next step was, if I choose one of the three, what, which one is in the best interest of my family? And uh, now we had uh, Gabor, who was just born uh, when I was an intern. And uh, that's your son and your namesake. Yeah. Yes. It, it, and it uh, it was sort of uh, obvious that the most uh, likely chance. The road to succeed is anesthesia, and um, it turned out to be—I turned out to be deadly accurate. 
I looked 15 years ahead. I didn't have to go 20. I sort of projected where I would, what sort of thing could happen. And then they stopped the military draft in England and was, would have been drafted. Oh, wow. I, I felt like I was given a couple of years' gift. And um, so I thought I'll go to America for a year because I didn't apply for the demonstrators. I talked to the chairman of Anesthesia, Cecil Gray. He says, yeah, he'll be happy to, have, happy to have me back. So I felt I had a job to go back to, and I thought, go and see America. But the Brits uh, look at America like you would look at a rich cousin, you know, that he's okay, but there's something not quite right. <laughs> and uh, I assumed that mentality prior to arrival in Syracuse. I had... I wrote two letters, I got two job offers, one at Dartmouth, one at Syracuse, and Dartmouth was going to pay me $2,600 a year, and Syracuse was much more generous, paid me $2,800 a year. Oh, wow. And, but plus, t- plus a ticket, round, random, uh, round ticket. And uh, I didn't have any money whatsoever. That's an easy choice. But I, I left my wife and beautiful wife and my son behind saying, in a couple of weeks, I'll be sending a ticket. I didn't know how, but I knew I was going to do it. You know something? I did it. And I hope I paid it back. But uh, well, Many times over, no doubt. No doubt. So it's, when you set your mind, it's amazing what you can do. So I ended up in Syracuse, uh, hated anesthesia, sitting there taking blood pressures every five minutes. But then physiology came out, and pharmacology came out, and the team spirit came out. And uh, it happened about six months. And then I, I suddenly realized I was very good, not by my self-recognition, but by how I was accepted, how it fit in the team and outcome. And so, so when you set your mind to be good at anything, it, it, it is more likely to work than when you just do a job. And uh, for me, it never just was a job. It was my choice, vocation and... Uh, started looking at small issues and a little bit bigger issues and, um, and amazingly it worked and I developed the way to, of learning that I would read up on something and then uh, next day I would make a fool of all of the others <laughs> quizzing, the, quizzing them on a topic that way I learned more uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of the Socratic uh, method in reverse, where <laughs> the resident is uh, pimping the uh, other residents. It's usually the doctor in charge pimping, and that's called the Socratic method. And that's how we used to learn. That's pretty much gone. Well, yeah, I guess you have to be correct and right, or some people may take insult, and uh, but I didn't care. <laughs> no, it helps with humility, that's for sure. Yeah. It keeps us grounded. So you went from Syracuse, where'd you hit then? I stuck around, you know. I didn't have the right papers, and I, um, but I, wa- I was wanted, so they did anything to keep me and were very nice to me. And I made enough noise, got involved in critical care, neuroanesthesia, working with neurosurgeons very closely. I learned a great deal from the neurosurgical mindset, and so I never, never intentionally bought into the operant conditioning and behavioral nonsense. Yeah. Uh, because I realized that you got to look for origin and explanation of pain. Don't just do the same procedure and declare everybody a drug addict, and you know, just do one thing and pretend that that's the solution to back pain, neck pain, leg pain, nose pain, ear pain, whatever, you know, to, to just, 
so you were dabbling in pain back then, and back then there was very few things that we did. In fact, most uh, doctors at any level didn't want anything to do with people that were in pain. I guess it was an epidural or nothing. No, it, 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 interesting. The first first procedure had a biggest impact on me is is to understand how desperate patients are. Our our professor and chairman of neurosurgery did, and it was something like 69 or so, six, maybe 68, an uh, implant of a spinal cord stimulator in a back pain. Really? But where you placed a corkscrew-like device into the cord. And prior to that, here's the patient on a stretcher, and he comes up to him and says, the best I can offer you is a 3% chance of improvement. Oh, jeez. And the patient says, well, that's better than what I have now, which is nothing. Yeah. So we've come a long way from that. And it took about eight hours because you had to open up the dura and, open, and expose the spinal cord, get hemostasis, then try to stitch it water, watertight so it wouldn't be spinal fluid leak, and then put some S's in the wires. and uh, So it was a... But what was remarkable that what people are willing to accept for pain relief... That's how desperate they are. That's a testament to desperation, and that's what we see. Yes, it's, it's it absolutely true, you know. And, and, and I saw a lot of thalamotomies for... Uh, tremors and Parkinson's, but also for pain. So, it had an impact. It had an impact on that. Uh, there is neuromodulation as as um, part of the uh, therapeutic armamentarium, and, and when any activity came along, I was really very close to it, and. Um, I remember using the Avery electrodes. Oh, that's, that's and way back. It, it was, but yeah. also learned that a 20% success rate was really not enough. And we had about 20% success rate because the two electrodes, it's a bipolar, and one electrode always moved, and it just was not a system. And then when I heard about one electrode having four contacts on the same, I said, holy tomale, that's, that's paradise. So I, we quickly jumped into it and, uh, and uh, had, it really had a major impact and, because it was uh, something you had to figure out because the companies didn't know what the hell they were doing. Yeah. And, what year was it? Oh, it was... In the 70s, yeah. uh, about yeah. se- 80, 79, 80. What company was that? That was pre two, two of them came out at the same time. The first one, actually, uh, that I saw was a, a Neuromed. There's a Bill Borkin. He mm-hmm. uh, sort of made the system, but his electrodes uh, uni- uniformly broke and went around. Their electrodes don't never break, never migrate. Every goddamn one of them broke. <laughs> You know, and, and he refused to d- admit, but they didn't migrate. He was absolutely correct. They just broke because he had a weak plastic outer layer, and and uh, Medtronic had a better coating. Theirs did not break outright. They just snapped at the entry point to the skin, and they they were confused with the men- mentality that a softer electrode is better. So within two weeks, you would have nerve root stimula- intercostal nerve root stimulation. I mean, every every damn time. So yeah, migration. Uh, yes. Yeah. It, it yeah. migrated to the side, and so I put them in further in, so to get a bit of scar formation. Then two or three weeks later, I pulled it down, so I had solved the migration problem to some extent. No one was putting those in back then. What got you started with stimulation? Because it was a real rarity back then. Well, I was the number one account in the whole country, and it happened because yeah. uh, had one of the guys, uh, 
a neurosurgeon who was a medical student at the time when I was at Syracuse. And he became a neurosurgeon, and he went in the uh, army, and then following that he went to work in, with Nashold. And Nashold was a, a sort of a serious entity, and uh, he learned from Nashold, and he came with radio frequency and stimulation oh. and an open mindset that you have not seen in any other specialty other than neurosurgeons. And he was a friend. And he sort of ex not only accepted, but in some ways even looked up. And, you know, when you have a, a relationship, and I always looked up to him for his contribution. So when you have a relationship that you develop with somebody, that becomes a productive relationship. So out of that came the first, almost one of the first publications on... Uh, Stimulation was 20-some cases we published in Spine, and we confessed to 20-some percent migration and fractures. And um, Neuromed uh, published a list, Rax says, uh, <laughs> that, you know, this many migrates, this many, and the Neuromed... Uh, their idol in, De in Colorado was saying that zero migration, zero fractures, and they lied like hell. And, yeah. and uh, it's it's a fact. So it's like, uh, I'm, I'm very careful not to make accusations that are not accurate. And, and so well, I called that started your academic career. Then that paper is that one of your first papers? No, I had a, had a number of papers before um, in, from Syracuse in neuroanesthesia. I wrote a book on. I many. I was I was asked to be a respiratory consultant, and when the chairman asked me to be a respiratory consultant, uh, we solved problems, uh, figured out. Uh, fat embolism syndrome, and if you look. Oh, wow. at, if you look in, and we published with Chairman of Orthopedics, Dave Murray, uh, an article on, on pe people dropping PO2s down in their 20s and rapidly bring it back. Uh, I just transferred the principles that uh, Arnold Sladen at, at Harvard developed, and he was weighing people to pick up on on uh, fluid accumulation in the lung in ARDS oh, wow. and I in a fat embolism syndrome when your patient is unconscious and has low PO2 I just used the angstroms and the acetylcholinic acid diuretic peat out and the PO2s would shoot up and used expert who retired before there was positive end and the PEEP and uh, so uh, it was paralyzing, sedating, the hyperventilating patients, and controlled CO2s with feeding in CO2 in the system. So it was a respiratory mechanics and, and uh, uh, gas exchange was sort of uh, my bag. And uh, so it, it, wow. the net effect of that was that surgeons asked me to lecture to the Harvey Cushing Society in Los Angeles. And they were nationally and internationally known, and they would get visitors. So it gave me exposure because I was running the head injury unit from a respiratory point of view. So you make friends, and from that you learn to make other friends. And you make friends by working hard, and, you know, for I did that for several years, but I never, ever sent a bill. I didn't know you could bill for doing what I was, <laughs> I viewed that was needed. Yeah. I was the treasurer of the anesthesia department, so I, I made lots of money for anesthesia by billing it right. And we worked hard. And, but when I say lots of money, it was a university-based system, so... I never had lots of money, but relative terms, more than average people. For people that don't know uh, the anesthesia world, what he just described with uh, P, positive end, uh, expiratory pressure, it's, and some of the other 
fine-tuning of a ventilator is kind of like fine-tuning a, a race car. Uh, it's it's really difficult to do because little changes make big changes, and uh, humans just are sometimes too sick to take that. So. Somebody that can handle the respiratory end of things and anesthesia and do it well, you're keeping people alive. That's what you're doing. Well, we've done cases that probably nobody else have ever since done many times because out of what I learned, we formed a school of respiratory therapy with one instructor, two students. I did that for 10 years at the 10th year it became a four-year baccalaureate degree program, 100 students, 15 instructors. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we made an impact. And I did that in my spare time. Plus the spare time also became the water polo coach for Syracuse University's <laughs> water polo team. And I uh, had four kids and... Uh, uh, running things, and but when you want to do something, you can. Wrote a couple of books, uh, and visible on all these respiratory and, and critical care. I'm a member of the, the Peter Safart started uh, SCCM Society of Critical Care Medicine, did, and yeah. so so it was interesting. But what it got you is is visibility and. Suddenly you get invited to be a professor and chairman of anesthesia elsewhere. I had no intention of leaving, but suddenly I was I was turning down places, but a couple of them I, I looked at, and at the same time happened, was chairman at Cleveland Clinic and uh, Texas Tech, and they ran parallel. And the same week I was in Cleveland on... Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday traveled, and Thursday, Friday, I was in Lubbock, Texas. And I knew that I didn't want to touch Cleveland Clinic because it's such a mess. <clears throat> there was, even then, had student nurses supervising student nurses and no academics, and, um, and that changed. And I had a little finger in the change because... Uh, I had an interview with the trustees or whatever they were called and, and I thought I'll prepare the grant for the next guy because I just didn't want to uh, do that <coughs> and so I said gentlemen you are the most dishonest group of people that I have ever met for doing what you are doing to fellow physicians and one guy would look very hurt and looks at the other one. Is this true? He says, the other one says, yes. So you pretend to be academics. There's nothing academic. Oh, wow. And you, pre you, you uh, don't pay people hardly anything uh, because I was making more money as an associate professor. And uh, you justify it by saying, but we don't, don't, don't charge much. But the responsibility, liability uh, of the people is is, yeah. is enormous. So, it, so you know, it changed because they are productive, they are producing, and the, the guys that came later, uh, eventually, David Brown, you know, and uh, there was an Egyptian guy who was made the head of the cardiac. Program. And when I went in, so I said, the first thing you have to do is fire him. But the first chair, when the chairman comes in, the first thing you must do is rehire him because he does a good job. But you can't have somebody else break up the department and give a title that should be within the department. So there was organizational issues. Uh, so, but. You learned from it, Texas Tech. It was Ted Hartman, who was the chairman of the search committee. And he introduced epidural steroids because he worked at Cleveland Clinic, Chicago, and he made Alan Winnie put the first um, epidural in into a patient. 
and then they published it in Anesthesia Analgesia as Hartman, no, sorry, Winnie Hartman, Ramamurthy, and one other guy. And that's where the steroids came from worldwide because that was the only journal in accessible to anesthesiology that was publishing worldwide because it was an international uh, journal. So, and ultimately, Alan Winnie was my friend through Joe. Dana Miller, mm-hmm. the Society, and I, I got involved. And These are all big names. Uh, sadly, so many of them are not with us, but um, yes. pioneers. Yeah, yeah. They really, they so really it's it's ter- terrible because they're mem- amazing people. They're nice people. Yep. The Dana Miller Foundation, which he alludes to, uh, Alan Winnie was a... Uh, Another individual, very, very interesting life, and that's a whole story by itself. Um, but true, you know, I, I grew up uh, reading their works, your works, um, and forged a way in my own career based on all these things. So you, you took the job at Texas. I took the, exactly, and it was an impossible job to start. It was still concrete pillars, and everybody's mother, brother was a nurse anesthetist, and when you have a small place to start, uh, it's big now, but we started with nothing. But I said, I'll give you a nurse anesthetist. I said, in a small place, if I take nurses, that's going to kill it. I said, thank you very much, but no thank you. So I went in with one friend, two of us, and I took call every other day and uh, added faculty and we wrote the residency and picked the residents and be nice to the medical student. And we had the program in the 96th percentile at one point. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you, you, whenever you're in academics, you're at the mercy of the leadership. When anything is going well and other departments not going well, the only solution they see is take it from the one they're doing well so that you destroy yeah. that. Redistribution, yeah. Uh, so it's it's yeah. a little bit of what currently is redistribution of wealth, you know. And That's the way it is in the academic world. And another point I want to make about the academic world is it doesn't matter where the city is. It matters who's in that academic institution. Lubbock had you. Yeah. And it's hard for many people to understand that Lubbock is not only the birthplace of pain medicine, but it had a world-class pain center. And, I mean, world-class. You have people from all over the world coming to you. Yes, because it was not accidental, because I, I was very critical of what we were doing. I realized I was taking off in a different direction, but I realized it was the correct direction. So I visited Seattle and looked at the operant conditioning because my contemporary in Liverpool was the one that took over from John Bonico while he was still alive, Terry Murphy. And from Terry Murphy came John Loser. And and then it went downhill. I mean, it's unstoppably going downhill. Uh, Because, you know, God knows what the hell they are doing. You know, it's... uh, yeah. It should not be. It, it's sad when, uh, you know, when it, everything is uh, sort of pills and do nothing and yeah. talk about it. And you knew better. And, you know, it's not just pills. It's also interventions. So you have uh, made some landmark advances in interventions. Uh, why don't you tell us about adhesiolysis? Well, it really came from a dead patient. It's named after you, by the way. Rack's procedure. Well, others named it as such, but it it stuck. So now I I don't sort of shiver when I have to say... I don't often (laughs) say Rack's procedure, but neuroplasty or whatever, you know. But um, it's a natural evolution. We had a plastic Abbott catheter migrate and kink at the same time, migrated into a vein after I put the first dose in. And when the baby was out, 
uh, from going from a sitting position to laying down, it migrated into a vein. Because you know, we've, we've understood the mechanism of the death by doing dogs and did a big open laminectomy in a dog and from the intact segment you threaded up a plastic catheter because the tip of it is so stiff, the rest is, appears to be soft, but it digs into anything to the side. And um, by the time it comes in view, it comes in like a, a, a U-shape. And if the t- whatever the tip of, hangs up on is like a vein, it can easily pop into it because nothing is being injected. You don't know it. And when you lay down, the skin slides down from the leaning forward position and that kinks under the skin, the catheter. So you do a standard of care, which is aspirate before you inject, but that doesn't protect you because if it's kinked, yet the pressure can overcome the kink, so it can inject directly into the vein. So the resident aspirated and injected and the patient had a cardiac arrest from 0.75% bupivacaine and 0.75% bupivacaine unfortunately is cardiotoxic and we added that case to Albright's series of I think it's like 13 cases that the FDA then withdrew 075 from the OB market and uh, so at least even in death but then I was on vacation at that time, but I came back, television, the newspapers, everybody's talking about this death and had to figure it out. So I thought, well, we better have a catheter that doesn't kink, cannot occlude, um, or if it occludes, you can't inject, and has a soft tip. I didn't even think about lysis, so I just wanted to avoid a C-section death. But then about that time, I was reading an article by Kathleen Wood from Colorado. She did, in pain, a a review article on phenol. And she said that there are no reported complications from the use of epidural phenol. It just seemed impossible. So we decided to study it. And just about that time, Jim Havner came to join me to run the research labs and I built a fancy research lab the operating room lab, chemistry labs and a whole area and um, so that was the beginning and then we did implantation testing in rabbits so that then an IRB approval for uh, patient use and study clinical study and then published it, and published it in JAMA, uh, uh, Journal of American Medical Association. Yeah, what year was that? 82 or 3. Yeah, yeah. But, and then, by then, you see, things happen so quickly. I thought, well, why does it not diffuse? How does it work then? If, if the phenol doesn't diffuse... And then I saw it probably works at the dorsal ganglion. So from day one, my targeting has been the dorsal ganglion area back into the 80s. So it's, nothing has changed. But now we know that epidural steroids are as useless as possibly can be. So you need to go with a catheter to the dorsal ganglion. And then in the neck, you flex and rotate chin to shoulder and then you open up the lateral runoff. And just now, there's a paper coming out in Pain Physician, 169 cases, 12 months retrospective review, and they find that the difference is not whether you had surgery before or not, but whether you see the contrast, and with it, the hyaluronidase and the local steroid, and followed by the hypertonic saline, is going out of the spinal canal. Now, that's when you get your results. And that's when you get your long-lasting results. And we are learning now from Birkenmeier that 
Uh, can you stop for a second? Mm -hmm. Good. Go ahead. So this paper from Korea, uh, these are spine surgeons and neurosurgeons and uh, some anesthesiologists, but large numbers of cases are being done, and uh, they're confirming what we haven't re we knew, and they're doing it not because sort of the same raindrops dropped like dropped on us, but I visited Korea three times for four days, two years apart, so it's uh, three visits in four years, and I did 148 procedures oh in, in 10, 12 centers at each visit. These are finest centers, and the Koreans are just superb doctors. So, the, you know, they try to improve on and change things, uh, making decisions, but uh, I think uh, the best result so far is what evolved over the years because something doesn't work or something is dangerous we stop it but the hypertonic saline is now Berkemeyer a German uh, spine surgeon group showed that the human fibroblasts are inhibited by increasing concentration and time of hypertonic saline and what we are showing <coughs> what, what I will be talking about this afternoon is the 22-year and 30-year follow-up following. These are rare cases that I happen to notice, like the first ever published case of lysis in the techniques of neurolysis. And uh, now, yesterday, I was told that uh, the second edition, with all the new information, is in it. And not only is the second case, but all the new information how the smaller catheters can get into the scarring triangle and describing the scarring triangle. Uh, those that are interested can look it up in the second edition of Techniques of Neurolysis and the case clinical cases linked to these topics will be seen and visible in the pain cast that is Epimed running but it's linked to the book. So uh, the learning is going to be speeded up by those that are interested and want to watch the videos, like listening to this uh, presentation. Uh, you are speaking about that this afternoon. And, yes, uh, yes. It's going to be impossible because the topic is so long. But that's why you know I need to have a reference. So if you want to learn about it, go to Paincast and read it, or come to one of some of the cadaver sessions we are doing uh, and uh, those are happening all over the world yet we started cadaver teaching in Lubbock you did yeah I remember those I went to one of those yeah um, some time ago it's in June right the June yes, course yes the yeah. June June, uh, yes. Well, is there and anything you'd like to to add about your about your career that you consider a highlight? Um, I know your wife has been amazingly supportive. You have a beautiful family, and I can tell you from my end, if you don't have that, a physician cannot thrive. No, it it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, um, it works differently. It would definitely works differently. Yeah, but it, you know, you, you need the family. You need your kids. Uh, you need to love them, mm -hmm. and you need lots of friends. You do, and you know, and you 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 end up with many friends and a handful of enemies that pick you for no good reason. But you professional know, jealousy, usually. Yeah, you know, it's it's unavoidable. Right. And, and you know, when it happens, it's sad. But I don't get mad. But. If I can, I usually can. I get even, <laughs> so, so I won't. I won't put up with it much. You know, it's it's not necessary. Sure. But it, it, I I want to love everybody. But you know, if you can't, I remember I, I used to be a water polo player where a lot of the activities underwater and. You know, uh, I had over the years some funny, funny 
you know, sort of people would pick on you, you know? Oh, yeah. And try to kill you professionally. And they, they would be satisfied, almost grinning, they just got you. But then you pop up in five different places, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's not as simple as lesser people think it is. Because when you have ability to work and enjoy what you are working, you will do anything uh, to keep doing better and bigger and better things. And in my mind, I would say the relationships mattered uh, from Terry Murphy in Seattle, that was a friend of mine in 57 in Liverpool. He passed away, but I remember him, and John Loser, mm -hmm. Sam Lipton from Liverpool, he came to tell, I invited to, to criticize what I was doing, and he came and spent for three days and um, gave an old-school lecture to Texas Tech, and at the end I said, okay, Sam, what do you think? He says, it's very good. Hmm. Not only that, but I'll be happy to come back and visit and help. And so he came with me for like 12 years. Yeah, lifelong friends. Times. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> next thing was uh, people I developed, like Miles Day, beautiful person. He is. He's really good, really yeah, smart. Yeah, a total delight and able. And the only one I trusted to work on my wife, Yeah. other than myself. Yeah, he's, he's quite a guy. So, and then, uh, and let's not forget the greatest of them all, uh, Prithvi Raj, who came and spent, I don't know, eight, nine years with me. And when, when people heard he's coming to be with me, he said, you guys are going to kill each other. <coughs> and you know what happened? <coughs> Nothing. Because I respected him, he respected me, we haven't had one single argument. And uh, he wrote the nicest note a few days before he went to heaven. And, and uh, you know, having gone to his funeral in Cincinnati, having seen uh, Susan and Maya and Mark, uh, it's sort of special. You know, so you have links in life that you have to keep up with. And achievements, hell, I've been treated nicely, uh, got so many friendly awards, but you cannot leave out <coughs> the, the fact that we started the FIPP exams, started cadaver teaching, started the whole educational process, and <coughs> and Go ahead. And it was obvious to me that we should do something because our standard societies were not doing what the ink and what pain physicians needed. And we are increasing the, the mass of pain doctors. Like we have trained like 160 fellows or something. And the many visitors from worldwide that came and spent a week, two weeks, a month. One Chinese professor spent six months with me. And uh, so it was obvious that somebody had to organize it. And I could not do it from the university side. I was obvious. It, it's so complicated. And then I saw in 98 or thereabout uh, Lex Menchikanti doing <laughs> yeah. the interventional pain group so I, I recognized that was needed it wasn't quite what it is now today but I recognized it was badly needed I, my, and my god it was correct uh, so I came as the first one really from academics to come and do anything that Lex needed and so we all grew from it. And I became, elect, first of all, appointed board member, then elected board member. And the, the funniest thing was when Lex, having received the results, 
and then he said, "Here's his usual sort of ha 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 ha, little giggle." You know, he says, and she, he says, "You got the largest number of votes." Oh wow! <laughs> so, so that was for a while, but but it's the experience of working with Lax has been phenomenal. He knows the people he works with. He knows the people, the skills they have. And let me tell you, the people that work with him deliver. They are the true mailman. You know, just deliver. Yeah. Well, and, he's and published what a, eleven books and four hundred and fifty publications. It's uh, it's remarkable. And, and uh, the lesser people that critic criticize him, they don't know how hard he works. It's possible for somebody like Lax. I couldn't do it. You know, I not. Not the numbers, right? Uh, but we are all different. Uh, I I tend to be more working with people and and designate and and share the responsibility. And for example, towards the end of my 23 years as chairman, uh, I didn't particularly want to be a chairman, but then I thought. I keep another SOB by <laughs> by keeping the job from the position, and I'm not going to say anything about people that followed. But I know that the job was barely doable uh, because of the administrative changes that are inatav- in- inevitably uh, uh, happened by people who are not. In the specialty, they're looking at it from a macrocosm, not a microcosm. The department needs to be looked at because everything we do is for the betterment, but it is not quite as good as uh, by expenditure by the dean and the system as they want to. They don't want anybody to be really outstanding, while the others are dying for. <laughs> But the dying is because of the talent of the people that are in the jobs, not because one is greedier and takes more money, you know. But but it's an interesting process that we have to live through. And I have nothing but the greatest respect for the people that do, do jobs like dean and president and chancellor and and the various boards. Because, but sometimes nobody is correct, you know. We're all. At odds with each other, and and your job, as if you get to be a leader, is to represent everybody's interests: the faculty, the you know, this organization, the system, the institution. Well, in medicine, we we are forced to use whatever skills we have and the academics, and. Um, it, it is a, a process that I have no regrets, absolutely, about the, uh, many nights. Uh, maybe I could have made more money for the department by billing for things I just did because it needed to be done, you know. And uh, it's not the, the survival private practice mentality, but I think when you have skills, they will be needed. Our patients need us. And our students and fellow physicians need us. And, and you can always say uh, thank you for your years of dedication because you have not helped a few people. You've helped tens of thousands. You've trained, uh, you've trained young physicians in, in the world uh, uh, of interest, and we're all better for it. And I thank you very much. Thank you, Hans, my dear friend. That was pretty great, and you may have noticed the, the acoustics really were awful. What you do when you you do these podcasts, these roving podcasts, is you you take what you get, and when you've got some somebody as uh, uh, prestigious uh, in your microphone as Dr. Gabor Rax, you you take the moment, you sit down where you can sit, and <laughs> I didn't even really edit this that much. I. I suppose I could have, but it took the spirit out. And I'm going to be doing this again at the annual meeting. I'd like to see everybody get there. Go to ASIPP.org. Check it out. Um, It's fascinating. It's regenerative medicine, metabolic medicine, things 
things are really kind of cutting edge. I have to tell you, a number of years ago, when we were talking about regenerative medicine. I'm like, what? What? Regenerative? Now we're into metabolic medicine. Where are we going to be in the next, uh, I don't know, three to five years? I don't know. Pain medicine and our interventional medicine, it's evolving. If you aren't part of the evolution, you're part of the history books. So we don't want to be that. We want to be cutting edge. That's what we do at ASAP. Please um, please come with us, join, uh, participate. We're always looking for folks that uh, uh, want to be uh, a, a part of the organization and a you know, and, and really get in there. You know, just uh, give us your expertise and your spin on your part of the world, and uh, love to hear from you. So, uh, thanks for listening. We'll get some more of these podcasts out, and uh, we'll see you at the annual meeting.